It is a joy to have our choir leading us in worship this day. I'm grateful for the commitment of our choir members and also uh, to Barry for leading our music ministry so well. Galatians is also going to be our second guiding text today, not only Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which hopefully now you've come close to committing to memory, but also Galatians 5, verse 1, and then verses 13 and 14. So this day, as we prepare to hear the proclamation of God's word, let us go to God in scripture. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. So admittedly, self-control is not the sort of thing that is often going to fill a sanctuary. It is, it's not the most inspiring of the fruit, although it is what Paul chooses to end this portion of Galatians with self-control. And if you're like me, then you probably had enough of moralistic religiosity telling you what you can and can't do that we've had to to wrestle with self-control. We've had enough of shallow Lenten practices that give up special indulgences like chocolate or cheese dip or beer and call that self-control. But I have to tell you, the more time I spent with this fruit over the last week or so, the more I began to see the importance of this fruit of the Spirit of God. Last week, I headed out just after worship, packed my truck, and began a trip across Tennessee. I camped uh, in Falls River Falls. Uh, and then, or Falls Creek Falls, and then over in Great Smoky Mountain National Park for a couple nights. Uh, It was an amazing time away, and it was rainy every night. Um, I go camping uh, often, and that helps me to clear my mind a little bit, and and I got to do that this past week. But when I was leaving the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, and I was made my way all the way across the park. If anybody's ever made that drive, you basically are going over the Appalachian Mountains, right? And, uh, and you're having to do that, or Smoky Mountains, and you're having to do that. And, uh, and then you come out the other side, and you can wind your way to Asheville or Greenville or any place you'd like to go. Well, when I came out on the, the southeastern side of the park, I saw a little turnoff, a turnoff that invited me to merge onto the Blue Ridge Parkway. Has anybody ever driven on the Blue Ridge Parkway? Yes, many of you have. It's beautiful. It reminded me that on many Sunday afternoon, following worship at John Knox Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina, where I grew up, my family, we'd head to the IHOP on Wade Hampton Boulevard. Um, We were classy, and so we enjoyed uh, a big old stack of pancakes and some coffee, my dad did, and then we would hop in the Honda, one of those boxy, like, 1988 Honda Accords, uh, and we would go take a ride on the Blue Ridge Parkway. This is one of my mother's favorite pastimes, and it was one I loathed. <laughs> but we did it. 
probably two Sundays a month we would head off after IHOP and we'd just go up there onto the parkway and we'd just drive. And I didn't understand the point of it. Of course, this past week when I was making that drive, I understood the point of it. But what I remembered as I was making the drive this past week was that when we would go for those Sunday drives, my mother would ask my father to pull off at some of the antique stops that are along the route. We'd, we'd get off the parkway and down and we'd go see a great antique store somewhere in western North Carolina. That was important because those were the respites I got for being on the road. So when we would pull off and we'd go to an antique store, although I had no desire to understand or know what antiques were at that point in time. We'd get out, we'd stretch our legs, we'd get to walk around a little bit. But what I was reminded of this past week is that when I got out of the car, my mom said, where do your hands go? And then I would put my hands up and I'd put them in my pocket or my pockets. Uh, my mother had a uh, hands in pockets rule when David was in the antique store. Okay. <laughs> So imagine uh, eight-year-old David getting out of the car, putting his hands in his pocket, and waddling his way into the antique store. It was, uh, I guess, because I had um, active hands when it came to seeing objects. I'd want to grab something and touch it, and my mother knew that the rule was if you break it, you bought it, and she desired not to buy any antiques. She desired to look at antiques. So I kept my hands in my pockets. She was rigid about this. If I took my hands out of my pockets, I was going back to the car. As I was thinking about that rule, I thought about, well, what other rules did my mother have for me when I was younger? We would go to my grandparents' house on Lake Hartwell, just outside of Clemson, South Carolina, for lunches on Saturday afternoons. And they didn't have a kid's table there. So my sister and I, we got to sit at the adult table. There was only one rule for us when we sat at the adult table. We were not allowed to talk until there had been exactly 10 seconds of silence amongst the adults talking. So nine-year-old David, 10-year-old David would sit there waiting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10. Inevitably, before I could get a word in edgewise, my grandmother or my grandfather would pipe in. Everyone else was in on the rule. I didn't know that till later. My parents, though, they were teaching me a couple different things. They were teaching me in, in one way to keep my hands to myself. They were teaching me in another way to be quiet and listen. Now, if you think those rules are a little too rigid, so does my therapist, but it is what it is. <laughs> and they taught me a number of things. I think one of the things, the, the spirit of what they were trying to teach me was, was a bit about what it means to have and practice self-control. This fruit of the spirit that we are indeed capable of embodying takes practice. It takes intention. It takes effort. I think my mom knew that probably more so than, than I even do at this point. You know, this fruit of the spirit also is, is exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ. I hadn't thought about that much until this week. In Christ, the God of all the universe, the God of all the universe, do you hear me? We claim that the God we worship is the God of all the universe. In Christ, this God took on flesh. 
The author of Philippians captures the the beautiful, awe-inspiring mystery of it all. When the author says, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you look up the Greek of this translation of self-control, what you see is that it can mean something like uh, self-limiting. Something that would be the antecedent of it uh, would be, or excuse me, um, would be the opposite of it, would be self-indulgent, which is exactly what the author of Galatians cautions us against in our text this day. You've been given the gift of life, the author tells us. You've been given the gift of life, but don't use this gift of life, this freedom to be self-indulgent. No, instead, use this gift to care for one another, to love each other. In fact, every bit of the law and world that we live in, it rests on this, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. It's an interesting and beautiful thing to think that the God of all creation, out of love, would come and take on flesh. That the one that is boundless would be bound by a human body. That is not the living, breathing example of what it means to to have self-control. I'm not sure what is. By bearing the fruit of self-control, though collectively, we give each other the space that we need. This is an interesting thing. What I've learned over my life is that the more I'm able to practice the idea of self-control in my life, the more space I give to other people. You know, when I was seated around that dining room table at, in Clemson for, for afternoon lunch or for dinner, um, I learned a lot of things by listening. I heard stories about my mom and my dad and my grandparents that I never would have heard if I decided that I needed to talk all the time. You know, if I wouldn't have counted to 10 Mississippi under my breath, waiting expectantly to get in a word edgewise, I probably would have never heard countless stories of the ways in which my family history has has moved. I wouldn't have learned about what my grandfather loved so dearly being out on the golf course. I wouldn't have learned about my, my grandmother's love of cooking and how she learned that from her mother and how her mother learned it from her mother. I wouldn't have heard stories about my Uncle Paul, my, my mom's brother, who I never got to meet. I wouldn't have heard stories about how my mom and my dad got together. I probably wouldn't have heard a lot of stories. What I've realized over time is that when we can practice self-control, we are actually doing something for ourselves and for other people. We are creating space for other people to share their experiences and their stories and their voice. This is something of what Jesus is modeling for us in this self-limiting nature of the incarnation. 
Repeatedly, Jesus gives space for his disciples to question and to disagree and to wrestle with these teachings and the way that he is going about ministry. There is so much space that Jesus gives. He doesn't come down just to fill their ears with words. He teaches, but then he lays back. Jesus also makes space for marginalized people, for people whose voices or experiences have not been valued in his society. In the hot of the afternoon sun, he sits by a well. In the midst of a crowd, he reaches back to find the woman who's touched his cloak. When the children aren't given space to come to him, he makes sure that they have the space to do so. And if you have sat around a dining room table or a boardroom table, if you sat around a, a church meeting or a family gathering, then you know the importance of creating space for other people. And that's the essence of self-control. A few years ago, I was only uh, three years into ministry and we were having a very heated session meeting there were 20 of us in the room. Everyone wanted their voice to be heard, but there was one person whose voice seemed to rise above everyone else's. This person had the floor, not because it was given to them, but because they took it. And then I watched the moderator of this meeting, a pastor that I admire, a pastor that I love. He calmly said to this person, there are 20 people in this room. We appreciate your voice but you've used more than 1 20th of the time. And other people need to be heard. They need to have space to share their stories and their experiences. That has stuck with me for a decade of ministry and beyond. Because the calling of God in the midst of this study of the fruit of the Spirit, the calling of God is for us indeed to make space, and that will necessarily mean that we must draw back of ourselves so that others might have space themselves. It's a tricky thing. It's a tricky thing because there are people even in our midst, perhaps you are one of them, whose voice has been silenced, whose perspective and whose story has not been valued in the way that it should be. And so it seems to me then, if we are to be the people of God, then we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, as Idlewild Presbyterian Church, ought to get about the work of self-control and bearing that fruit even more so. Here's what I realized when I got done making that drive across the Blue Ridge Parkway, thinking about my mom's rigidity. What I realized is that she was preparing me in a way to take up the space that God had called me to take up but then to also invite other people to take up the space that God has invited them to, to use their voice, to share their story, to let others know of how God is at work in their lives. Beloved, bearing the fruit of self-control, it can dramatically change the world that we live in. What I posit to you this day is that if we can bear the fruit of self-control, if you can do that, you will be changed by the beauty and the power of the space that is created around you. You will be changed by the stories that you hear 
you will change the way you live in response to the stories that you hear. You will be freed also from the myth that this life is all about you. And as a community, we, if we can practice and bear this fruit, when we practice self-control, we will hear the voices of those who have long been pushed to the periphery, but whom God intends for us to hear their stories. When we bear the fruit of self-control, we realize it is actually a divine gift meant not to persecute us, but to allow us to experience the fullness of all humanity and creation. When we bear this fruit, we can change families and businesses and relationships and communities. Beloved, as we embody the fruit of self-control, we We are indeed reflecting the very nature of Jesus the Christ, the one who has drawn us to this place today in worship and in song. You know, the more I think about it, it's probably time for me to reclaim some of the things that my mom and my dad taught me. Maybe the 10-second rule wasn't such a bad idea. Maybe I'll pick it back up. Maybe you'll feel invited to, to do the same. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.